Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to episode 62 of The Hedgehog and the Fox. Exactly 500 years ago, the Aztecs were locked in a monumental struggle for their civilization's survival with the newly arrived Spanish conquistadors. One of Cortés' men recalled his impression of the Aztec cities with awe. These great towns and pyramids and buildings rising from the water, all made of stone, seemed like an enchanted vision. Some of our soldiers asked if it were not all a dream. But recording his memories years later, he writes... Today, all that I then saw is overthrown and destroyed. Nothing is left standing. The civilization Bernal Diaz remembered was not all a dream. The Aztec's capital, an island city in a lake on the site of today's Mexico City, was as sophisticated as any in Europe, a place with politics, military alliances, arts, administration, with gardens, markets, a library, a palace, and those pyramidal temples that so impressed Diaz. But of course, as we know, the Aztecs practised human sacrifice in those temples, a fact that so predominates in popular impressions of them that almost everything else about them is cast in its shadow. Yet as my guest today, Camilla Townsend, writes in her latest book, The Fifth Sun, A New History of the Aztecs, the Aztecs would never recognise themselves in the picture of their world that exists in the books and movies that we have made. They thought of themselves as humble people who had made the best of a bad situation and who had shown bravery and thus reaped its rewards. History Today, reviewing the book, said simply, everything you thought you knew about the Aztecs is wrong. Camilla's book is about the trauma of conquest, but it's also about survival and continuity, about how the Aztecs saw and understood themselves. The Spanish conquest is neither introduction nor climax, but it is the pivot. To gain an understanding of the Aztecs, Camilla, who's a professor of history at Rutgers, immersed herself for years in their language, Nahuatl. And language, I suggested when we spoke, is central to the whole story. Well, you're quite right that 
For me, it's all about the language. I think the Aztecs have been studied far too long through their few remaining objects, which tend to be things like sacrificial flint knives <laughs> and other frightening things. So it was very important to me to convey to people in a readable and accessible way how they sounded when they talked, when they sang, when they joked, you know, when, when they tried to scare people sometimes by saying certain things. So you're absolutely right that that was the key to the endeavor. And one thing I did try to do was, well, of course, to include as many direct quotations as possible. That goes without saying, I suppose, that if these sources are so key to me, they must appear in the book. But because their exact phrasing is sometimes alienating to outsiders, I couldn't just move from one long quotation to another. I, I could only do it in snippets where I, where I had set it up so that I knew the reader would understand. But Another thing that I tried to do is in some ways mimic their language to try to convey the short punchiness of it, the occasional humor, uh, both light and dark, the pairing, the repetition of, of images. This is what we will remember. This is what we will never, never forget. You know? So in different ways, I tried to convey to people what they sounded like when they talked. Okay. Now, how did I gain access to that? That's a that's a whole nother thing, as we say over here. Um, I was very fortunate. When I was a young professor at a, a liberal arts college, I already had tenure and could do whatever I wanted to do. And I saw that one summer they were going to be teaching a Nahuatl, an Aztec language course at Yale. I had been interested in this figure named Malinsin or Malinche or Doña Marina, the woman who translated for Hernando Cortez. And I knew very well she had left no records. If she had, there would have been good books written about her before. But I wanted to try to write about her, and I thought, you know, I ought to learn some of her language before I even embark on this project, even without the sources. It's just like I would never write about a French figure if I had never taken a single course in French. So I went to do it, and, you know, I think I was harboring some racist thoughts. I was unaware of it, but I thought that the language would be way too hard, that these people were so foreign to us Westerners that I would never be able to understand, and it was just going to be kind of for kicks that summer. Well, I learned what is perhaps obvious to many of the listeners— Languages are different in some ways, but they're profoundly similar. We all have subjects and predicates, in, in essence. So when I realized that I could do it, I'm quite good at language, and uh, this was just like other languages, I got all excited. Now, I will say, I didn't get so good that I could read their sources easily uh, for a, a number of years. It was actually at least 15 years of studying before I began to feel comfortable enough to write this book. Because you have to read an awful lot of their sources to make sense of them, because they weren't writing them for us. They didn't care if we could understand them or not. So it, there's the question of learning the language, and then there's the question of learning how they write about things. Um, but once I thought I began to understand, uh, I thought, you know, I should write this book so that I can show this world to other people and perhaps induce other young people to study that language. There are many people in Mexico who speak the language. Sadly, they have been reduced to poverty in most cases and are farmers working in rural areas who don't have the time or energy or sort of wherewithal to read and write even much in Spanish, much less in an ancient language that was once theirs. So that's why I keep saying or talking about we scholars, um, even though there are 1.5 million speakers. How problematic is it that a lot of the sources date from decades, sometimes several decades, 
after I mean, and 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 I know you're you're talking about more than just the Spanish conquest but since that is a pivotal period how much of a problem is it that a lot of the sources date from quite considerable number of years after that that period you've put your finger on a key point for a long time after scholars realized that these sources existed they still tended to ignore them, at least for any study of the pre-conquest period, because it seemed that if we took them literally, we would be more than a little bit gullible. These are sources that were written down after people learned the the Roman alphabet and, and could then start to transcribe sound quite easily, written down in the 1550s or afterwards, so at least a full generation after conquest. And of course, they had always been oral histories, that's not a literal archival record. So it was easy to assume, oh, these are sort of propagandistic texts, almost like folk songs. They tell us no more than, say, a folk song written, you know, years later. And I see, I understand why scholars assume that. However, once we began to read them in some depth, and once we began to read many of them, once one of us could read many of these, and that had to do with our improving knowledge of the language, we began to realize that some of this was absolutely sort of recorded, memorized, detailed material. If you have different sets of annals, different texts recording exactly the same thing about when this battle was or where it was or which prisoners were taken and which prisoners were not, you can begin to think, well, this doesn't just seem to be a folk tale. This seems like a pretty clearly memorized record of an important battle. Likewise, sometimes the contradictions tell you something. So one town's set of annals will say it was a princess from our people who married the high chief. And maybe the next town ever says it was a princess from our people who married the high chief. Well, we realize we'll never know for sure who was really the first wife of the high chief. But what becomes very clear is that who got to be the first wife of the high chief was a very important political issue. So even when we can't be quite sure of the details, we can still learn a great deal from these texts about what mattered. So taking that attitude, I figured by looking closely, we could come pretty close to understanding what was going on for about a 100 years before conquest, two to three generations, let's put it that way. Beyond that, I think we are entering the, the, the realm of myth and legend. And in fact, if you notice, the first chapter of my book is really based mostly on archaeology, as I give the deep history of these people coming down from today's, the southwest of, of today's United States, because I, I wouldn't pretend that any legends that got written down in the mid-1500s about what happened, say, in the year 1200 are literally true. That would be silly. <laughs> and you described Camilla spending 15 years you know, getting to grips with the language. Was that process like something coming into sharper focus? Was it sort of like turning a lens and gradually beginning to see how this people lived and and, and functioned? It was, because some of the the, the shapes, so to speak, if we're using the microscope uh, metaphor, at first seemed very confusing to me. I couldn't tell what they were. But I suppose very much like a scientist, after you begin to see enough of these images, you begin to make out. Because perhaps in this other situation, this slide under a different context, you can see, for example, the mitochondria very clearly. So then when you see something that looks a bit like that in another slide, you realize, oh, that's the mitochondria. So likewise here, 
when something would be very clear in one particular instance, it would help me understand uh, something that I was seeing rather more often. Uh, what would be a good example? Well, these long lists of where the women prisoners from battles were brought. Uh, at first, it seemed rather extraneous, unclear why they were mentioning this. But later, it became very clear to me that how one's royal women were related to another city-state's king was crucial. If they were taken as slaves or concubines, it meant that your people had been reduced to powerlessness. They were purely the payers of tribute. If they were taken as wives, but not first wives, then you could understand a more equal relationship, etc. And if they were taken as an actual wife whose whose sons would inherit the chieftainship, then your polity, your city-state had actually scored some power, had won in the political game. So I began to realize that these apparently odd details about about the way in which the women were taken prisoners were actually to them at the time uh, that these stories were first uttered and then written down, very important explanations of the political layout. So that would be an example of the way in which it felt like I was, as you put it, almost turning the lens and things were becoming clearer over time. It's not something I could have written 20 years ago or even 10 years ago. Another thing you, you point out early on in the book is that the name Aztec is in itself problematic. You know, reading the book is much more than just a sort of matter of scholarly nicety. When you understand that 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 label has been rather liberally applied and actually conceals something, a lot of other things become become clear about the nature of the societies that that you're writing about. It seemed to me that understanding that was part of another broad theme of the book, which was understanding the Mexica people as a political people and understanding the political dimension rather than seeing them as sort of so culturally alien that we couldn't begin to to even conceive of them in those terms. So tell me a little bit about why Aztec is a problematic label and how if we get beyond that, things start to come into sharper focus again. You are absolutely right. The term Aztec was never used by the people that we think we're talking about. It was invented uh, by Europeans in the 18th century. Uh, The Aztecs believed that they came from a place called Aztlan. We're not sure where it is, but presumably somewhere in the American Southwest. So these scholars, in effect, made up a word. Uh, Teca means people in Nahuatl. So the Azteca, the people of Aztlan. And they thought they were very clever, and and it did work in that it became a kind of quick label that we outsiders could use to apply to all those ancient people from the Central Valley of Mexico that lived a long, long time ago and did creepy things like human sacrifice. But of course, they didn't use that word and they wouldn't have understood sort of which people were being referred to because it was, as you say, a deeply political world, just like any human world is. Uh, the Mexica were the ones who had risen to power when the Spaniards came. So we might think about them when we say the Aztecs. On the other hand, they ruled over or kind of directed the operations of many dozens of other city-states who each had their own names, and some of them never were under the influence of the Mexica. So do we call all of them Aztecs too? I mean, some people do some people don't. Most of us don't even realize there's a decision to be made in that regard, right? So you're right. This sort of easy label that was made up for outsiders 
didn't just become a handy word to use to refer to that part of the world in a certain time. It became a word that then obscured the idea that their world, that Mesoamerican Central Mexican world, was just as complicated as, say, medieval England, bluntly. And why do you think, Camilla, Aztec became such a byword for a culture that was so fearsomely alien and bloodthirsty? I mean, we could say, well, the, the conquerors always write the history, don't they? But that's been true in other, in other situations where the West has encountered indigenous peoples. So what was it about the Aztecs that have given them this sort of almost uniquely fearsome reputation in, in, in later both historiography and in, in, in more popular culture? Right. I mean, I think most of us, when we think of Aztecs, we literally think of blood dripping from the teeth as they've just ripped, someone has just ripped a heart, you know, still beating heart out of someone's body. As with many stereotypes, there is a kernel of truth. They did practice human sacrifice. But as with many sacrifices, the distortions more than outweigh the kernel of truth. Scholars now think that probably all ancient humans practiced human sacrifice. I'm, I'm sure you know there's discussions of that in ancient Britain, etc. It's everywhere if you look back far enough. There are even sort of indirect veiled references to it in the Bible. Archaeologists currently would argue that we should just assume that if you go back long enough, you will find instances of human sacrifice. And if you go back not even so far, you will certainly find enslavement everywhere. So the Native American people everywhere in the hemisphere were no different. Prisoners of war, especially young, brave men, could find themselves facing sacrifice in some form or other. Children and young women were much more likely to be adopted. Uh, that was often part of the point of waging war, to gain access to more more uteruses, more wombs, to raise your population. But these brave young men could and were often sacrificed. That was almost universal. There was nothing unusual in the Mexica in that regard. But then the Mexica did begin to use human sacrifice as a terror tactic, as a power ploy, as they were the last to arrive in the Central Valley and had to fight the hardest to gain any land and any power. Once they did, they seemed to have almost consciously decided never to go backwards. They worked very, very hard to maximize power at every turn. And in fact, within a 100 years, brought themselves to the point of ruling the whole Central Valley and territory beyond. Pretty impressive, actually, much like the Incas and certain other empires around the world. One of the ways they did that was by offering to people, look, you can join us penalty-free, you have a place at our council table, or you can fight us. But if you lose, then you will have to give some of your young people every year as human sacrifice victims. They actually, by the end, had gotten so good at terrorizing people that they would bring people in from the outskirts, the area that they had targeted for conquest, show them the sacrifice ceremonies, and then send them home, untouched and unhurt to tell their people what they would face if they chose to fight. Or, again, the option was always open to join and partake in the wealth. It worked very well. We can't prove this with certainty, but my impression from the earliest sources is that some of the political leaders and some of the priestly leaders who came from the same class of men were what we might call now right-wing nuts. Some very bad apples had gotten into power and were willing to do almost anything. And they carried the culture with them for that generation. So it really was true that by the time the Spaniards got there, there were monthly sacrifices going on of dozens of people. They were never sacrificing thousands at a time. 
that was always BS, if you'll excuse me. Um, but it was getting pretty brutal. And I suppose that made it easy for the Spaniards to spread their tales of the carnage of life under the Aztecs. I promise I will move off um, human sacrifice because I don't want to fall into the trap of fixating on it. But something you, you, you just mentioned, this popular image, which we, we've all seen in films of, you know, hundreds of people being, being led to, to ritual sacrifice and a sort of mesmerised crowd in a state of sort of frenzy. You write that, by contrast, it was a gravely quiet, spellbinding experience for those who, who witnessed it. And I wondered, what kind of records do we have that sort of make it possible to know what the sort of state in which people experienced this was like? Right, that's an excellent question. And perhaps I was too assertive in what I said there, but I do stand by it. I make that claim based on the surviving prayers. We don't have lots of these surviving prayers and, and surviving poems, many of which were also prayers, but we do have quite a few. Some of these prayers have been translated and have been known and sort of ignored, but others, the ones that come from the songs, have not been well translated before because they're very difficult. But interestingly, they tend to abhor violence, to bemoan violence, to speak with a sort of a shuddering, horrible sadness of the need to kill. And when prayers are about their own warriors dying on distant battlefields, they too take a very somber, non-celebratory tone. So, from these skimpy records that we have that are uh, you know, religious murmurings, there's no sense of a kind of orgiastic, wild celebration, but of a very dismal, quiet, uh, miserable reaction to it. And there's also some discussion of why this was necessary, and it was to placate the gods I think to some extent, as I've just said, the political figures were using this belief to maximize their power, but at root, there was a belief there, just like some leaders in our world have abused Christianity to try to get their way politically, but there is still a Christian faith at the heart of, uh, of many of those cultures. So likewise, there were people who truly believed this, and they were sad about the fact that the gods required so much of humanity. There's no statement anywhere that either the humans uh, were happy about this, uh, the only ones that were left laughing, they said, were the gods themselves, who play with us, as they put it. So there's no reason to think they thought this was a good time. Now, maybe to counterbalance our talk of um, human sacrifice, I could get you to say a little about the Mexica's city, which was a, a city on a, on a shimmering lake um, on the side of what would later become Mexico City, and which clearly had a very developed culture in, in all sorts of ways. And for example, the culinary culture seems highly sophisticated. I mean, can you give us a sense, and maybe partly through the eyes of the Spanish who saw it for the first time, what, what kind of impression did this city make? All the Spaniards are seeing it on the first time, at least they said later, that it struck them almost dumb. It was so beautiful. It was built on an island in the midst of a lake, and then the, the city on the island was kind of moored to the shore, if you will, by three long causeways. And in the center of the island were two huge pyramids, which were whitewashed with lime, so they shimmered white in the sun. And then there were many bright-colored or cotton fabric, flag-like things waving, and then other parts of them were painted bright colors. The city itself had been planned. I mean, unlike European cities, 
cities that rose organically, as you know, this one was founded by the Mexica about a hundred years before the Spaniards first saw it. So they realized that they needed to plan it. And so you had these long, wide streets around neighborhoods of smaller streets. And the houses were mostly two stories around courtyards and they grew things, their, the family gardens on the rooftops. So spilling over each rooftop were beautiful flowering uh, gardens. So the Spaniards were struck by all of this, the, the grandeur, the orderliness, the, the, the colors, the gardens. At the very central area where the royalty lived, there was actually a zoological garden. There the, the king, the high chief, kept birds from tropical countries that they were in effect farming so they could use their feathers for artwork. And he also kept uh, sort of exoticisms, rarities from throughout the empire that paid him tribute. Uh, so it was a sign of his power. But it was also a, a very interesting site. He also had a library. Again, it was mostly records, historical records, tribute records, tax records. But it constitutes a library in the sense that these were written records stored in an organized way. So it was very impressive. And in fact, one uh, Spaniard, Bernal Diaz, lamented later, he, he sounded almost teary as he wrote the paragraph, how sad it is that all that was there then has been destroyed, because that is how the Spaniards won that war. They leveled the city. They used cannons from uh, shipboard to blow it to smithereens. There's a very persistent myth that the Mexica regarded the Spanish as gods. And you can see how from the Spanish point of view, getting that narrative accepted sort of is very convenient because it makes it seem like it was almost an inevitability and there was some, some kind of natural justice or some acceptance that the Mexica would surrender to them. And clearly, that wasn't the case from, from so much of what you write in the book. How difficult it, is it to get at the, the true reality of the Mexica's response to the Spaniards and see it in all its, you know, its, its subtlety, its complexity, its, its pragmatism rather than sort of credulousness and surrender? You're very right. It is difficult to get a sense of what the Mexica were thinking exactly at the moment of conquest. However, we can get a pretty good idea. First of all, the story that they were received as gods was only written down years later by the Spaniards in Spanish and writing for other Spaniards. It was two generations later in the 1570s and 80s when for the very first time you get a few indigenous people saying the same thing. And they were the students of the Spanish friars who had invented the story in the 1530s and 40s. And even then, they would say things, these Indian students of the friars would say things like, well, they seem to have thought they were immortal, but that has been written somewhere else. So it was almost as though they were sort of trying to talk themselves into it, but didn't really know what to say about it. On one level, I think it became a very appealing story to the indigenous as well as to the Spaniards. Of course, it's most appealing to the Europeans. It's very gratifying, right, to feel like a god. But it's yeah. appealing to the Indians, too, because they can say, oh, my all-powerful grandfather, you know, the general of the warriors of the Aztecs, he wouldn't have lost the battles, I don't think so. It must have been that he perceived them as a god. So it, it, it becomes appealing as a kind of explanation, even if it's not very flattering. Well, if you look at the records that do exist from the time, there's just no evidence for it. Cortez did write several letters home during the course of the conquest, and he did not say that he was being perceived as a god. No one else wrote during the course of the conquest, except possibly some of the indigenous people whose glyphic records from that moment we do not have. 
But indigenous people did begin to write, again, using the Roman alphabet to record their own histories and stories, not many years later. And there was nothing said about being perceived as gods at first, nothing at all. On the contrary, what they talk about in those records reflects what they actually did at the time, which was fight like hell. Right? The, the, the Mexica fought for three months, a door-to-door guerrilla warfare in their urban setting. So there, we can look at their actions. We can look at the earliest records that we have access to. And we can look at the Spanish records, Cortez's letters, and nothing adds up to a sense that they were perceived as gods. It all seems to have been invented later by the Spaniards and then picked up on by the Indians years later. And it makes sense that this would happen, but it does seem sad because it kind of freezes the Indians in a kind of awestruck state, you know, bowled over, overwhelmed by these amazing European guys. And that's the story that enters our textbooks. Montezuma, for example, is said to have been trembling in his shoes at the sight of these, at these Europeans. But of course, he had led the Mesoamerican Empire for 17 years. He was a man in his mid to late 30s. It makes no sense that he would have responded that way. So I think we have to take it with a grain of salt. And in fact, he was making quite astute political calculations, wasn't he? Because as you say, he had he had led an empire. There were various peoples who were allied to him. There were various peoples who were enemies. And he was, it wasn't simply a matter of um, the Mexica against the Spanish. He was thinking about the resonances, the ramifications, the perceptions in a highly sophisticated way of how you know, how this all played out. That's exactly right. He does seem to have launched some battles as the Spaniards were approaching the city. But once they were too close, he didn't want to have any battles, even if they could drive the Spaniards away for a while, as they ultimately did, actually, in the Noche Triste, the sad night. It was going to cost hundreds of deaths, possibly even thousands of his own men. And that was part of the deal, as as all powerful governments. Uh, they make such a deal with their people. Let us do what we want to do to other people as long as we are good to you and provide peace and security to you. It's certainly the deal that the U.S. government has, has long made with its own people. So I don't mean to throw stones. But in fact, he could not, for that reason, risk a catastrophic battle too close to home. It, it made much more sense for him to invite these people into his city and get to know them and try to work out a political deal, which seems to have been what he did. As you say, he was very astute. But there was this unavoidable technological imbalance, wasn't there, between the Spanish and the Mexica, because the Spanish had more advanced arms, they had horses, they had shipping, they had they had a lot of things in their in their literal and metaphorical armory. Was there a certain inevitability about the way things were to play out, given that imbalance that was written in from the start? You ask a, a rather politically dangerous question for me, okay? But yes, I will say those people who had been farming or were the heirs of people who had been farming for about 10,000 years, that is the Europeans and the Asians, had far more technological power than those who had only been farming for a couple thousand years, i.e. the Central Mexicans. It is farming rather than hunting and gathering that causes people to become sedentary in their lifestyle. And then they can diversify more. They can, you know, divide up the labor. Some people can write poetry. Some people can invent armaments. We see this everywhere, uh, that the longer people have been farmers, the more inventions they have. It makes perfect sense. It has nothing to do with intelligence. You're 
your average hunter-gatherer may be just as smart or in fact smarter than your average farmer, but it does lead to an arsenal of technological developments. The reason I say the question is a little bit politically dangerous is taken out of context, we in our modern era who tend to assume that if you're tech savvy, that you're smart, if you take it out of context, you can sound like you're saying that the Europeans were more tech savvy, i.e. that they were smarter. And of course, I'm saying quite the opposite. There was nothing individually uh, more intelligent about the Europeans. And in fact, when you read what actually happened in the negotiation between the sides, it's quite clear to me that we were dealing with some extraordinarily brilliant men on the indigenous side which makes sense. They had risen through the ranks to become, within their own world, world-class leaders. They hadn't just inherited power. So it has nothing to do with it intelligence. But yes, if over many, many generations due to being farmers, uh, one's own culture has amassed more more technology, that will make a difference when you come face to face with people who haven't. It's a bit as though the ancient Sumerians had come face to face with the Holy Roman Emperor and his army. If, if we were going to put this all in the old world and areas that, that your listeners know more about. Nothing wrong with those ancient Sumerians. They were pretty smart. <laughs> Their archaeological remains are pretty impressive. We all know that. But you wouldn't want to see what would happen to them in a battle with the army of the Holy Roman Emperors. Yes, my, my question my question wasn't kind of asserting the rightness because of that. Techn- I wasn't sort of suggesting that Western hegemony should have prevailed because they had more sophisticated um, weaponry. But but simply that comparison that you made stuck in my my mind, and I just wondered if that if it was insuperable simply because of of that advantage that they that they had. And of course, there was disease too, and that played a big part, didn't it? The introduction of smallpox played a a very big part in you know, in reducing the, the Mexica in, in numbers and I guess in morale. The introduction of disease played an incalculable uh, role and, and was very costly to the indigenous. There was a time when scholars liked to say that that was the sole reason that the indigenous lost. And that, in fact, is not true. We see indigenous uh, states going down before the old world technological might in some areas, even before the first epidemic starts. Likewise, we have to acknowledge that the diseases hit hard both sides. So, for example, when smallpox struck exactly 500 years ago, exactly 500 years ago, the first great epidemic of the New World hit, it destroyed for about three months the Mashika's ability to fight, but it also destroyed the ability of the to fight of all the indigenous allies who had flocked to the Spaniards. They were just as sick. So everybody tended to their dead for several months and then got up and went back at it, just as our world will eventually stand back on its feet and move forward as some immunities are developed. So yes, disease was important, but I cannot honestly say that disease caused the conquest. It was one of the factors, but not the cause. Camilla, you, you've already mentioned a woman called variously Marina Malinche Malintzin, and she has a pivotal role in this whole story and ties into what we began talking about, which is which is language and the role of language and what language permits or inhibits. I wondered if you could say what a key role she had in how the conquest unfolded and, and subsequently. 
Yes, I'm fascinated by this woman. I guess much like your Queen Elizabeth, she gives us an opportunity to talk about a moment in time when a woman really was sort of the most powerful being on the whole continent for a little while, right? Those moments are rare in world history, but they do exist. So she was an indigenous woman, a girl who grew up uh, near today's Veracruz. It was then called Quetzalcoatlcos, which was a region that was under attack by the Aztecs, by the Mexica. And either in the battles or in the, in the peace negotiations, we're not sure, she was given away as a peace offering to the enemy and ended up getting sold by Aztec merchants, uh, Mexica merchants, to the Maya kingdoms to the east. And she was then given to the Spaniards as a peace offering after the Maya's first major battle with Cortez's forces. So she was a slave, a sex slave, a concubine who had suffered a great deal by the time she came to live among the Spaniards. And if there were people whom she hated, it was the Mexica, because they had caused the trauma in her own natal land. So she had two choices then when she was living with the Spaniards. She could just continue to be a passed-around concubine, brutalized in all those ways, or she could tell them that she spoke not only Mayan, but her native language of Nahuatl, the same language as the Mexica, as the Aztecs. She did tell them, uh, and so through her and a Spaniard who had lived as a castaway among the Maya, they were able to set up a translation chain so that Cortez could find out at all times where he was going, where there was a market where they could buy caged birds and eggs, uh, so that when he got to Montezuma's city, he could uh, negotiate with Montezuma. Uh, she was so smart, this young woman, that she actually quickly learned Spanish, and then she became the sole translator for a while. We don't know what her indigenous name was, but it probably would have been something like youngest daughter or oldest daughter. That's pretty much what they called girls. She was christened Marina by the Spaniards, and this, the indigenous people heard that as Malina, because they didn't have R. And then they added that Sin as an honorific, because she was a high-status person among the Spaniards. So we know her today as Malintzin or Malinche. We'll have to be satisfied with that, because we'll never know what her mother called her when she was rocking her in her arms. But for a number of years, she was extremely powerful as she negotiated between Old World and New. Tragically, she died very young. In the late 1520s, she succumbed to one of the European diseases when she was probably about 30 years old. She left two children, one by Cortez and another by her husband. And they live to have children. So there are descendants of Malinsin walking around on this earth today. As you suggest, her role became much more than just an interpreter, didn't it? She had quite a, a powerful advisory role, didn't she? Given the political complexity of the Mesoamerican world, exactly, she had to do far more than just translate. She had to understand the lay of the land. Of course, when the Spaniards got there, they had no idea who the Mexica were, or who they ruled over, who they were trying to rule over, who hated them most, etc., which routes would be the safest. But she understood all of that. We have reason to believe, based on the register of Nahuatl that she spoke, that she was probably the daughter of a lord, although almost certainly by a concubine, by, uh, you know, a secondary or, or tertiary woman, not by a first wife, because then she wouldn't have been as likely to be sold into slavery. So she had access to, to statecraft, so to speak, growing up, and she used it. It was very clear that she was an extraordinary political negotiator. And she actually did a great deal for various indigenous villages after the War of Conquest in trying to get a good, a good tribute deal for them with the Spaniards. Sometimes she was more successful than others, but she, it's very very obvious from the indigenous records that she tried. 
I was talking to Camilla Townsend about her book, The Fifth Son, A New History of the Aztecs. It's published by Oxford University Press. The Guardian called the book revolutionary, and it's certainly one of the most vividly written history books I've read in a long time. Highly recommended. If you've enjoyed this interview, you'll find more than 60 others available at thehedgehogandthefox.com. You can subscribe to the programme wherever you get your podcasts, catch up on any interviews you've missed, and leave a review. I'll be back again soon with another programme. So until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.